Why don't you pray with me one more time before we begin to pray together. Father, we thank you again for this glorious day. Thank you for your mercy, your grace. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, for us that are feeling well enough to attend church today. We pray for all of our families that are sick and um, struggling, Lord. This has been a hard flu season this year. We, We pray for their swift recovery and restore them back to health. Lord, we ask for your help now, Lord, as we look at your word. We pray that you would encourage us today, Lord. Remind us of the precious gospel that the Apostle Paul called my gospel. May we, with the same heart as his, may we take ownership and identify with this gospel and say with Paul that this is my gospel. And Father, may we also be faithful in the proclamation of your gospel. Open up those doors, Lord. Give us opportunity and give us the boldness to speak forth your word, realizing that we don't, we don't have a, just, a, a, just a, a message of self-help. We don't have a message of felt needs, Lord, but we have a message that is ultimate. There are infinite polarities that are involved, Lord, heaven and hell hang in the balance, and what we talk about is eternal. And so, God, we pray that you would give us a heart of compassion for our fellow man. Give us a heart of compassion for those around us that we may think and we may deem them to be too lost to be saved. Remind us, Lord, that it is the very Apostle Paul himself who is instructing us. Who He was himself the persecutor of the brethren. And you redeemed him and that this mighty apostle is now the one who is instructing us to do the same and to imitate his conduct. We pray your help now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, we're just continuing the theme of evangelism and what we entitled evangelism explosion because of the word that you see there in verse 8, the word of the Lord sounded forth. And we looked at that Greek word there, sounded forth. Uh, which is used in uh, ancient uh, Greek literature because it's only found here. It's a hapax legomena. In other words, it's a term that's only found here uh, in the New Testament, but it does mean something like to thunder uh, out, to to sound out like loud uh, waves that are crashing on the sea. Those are the types of uses of that term. And so there was an explosive uh, evangelistic zeal that resulted from having heard and received the word of the Lord. And let me just say too, as we think about evangelism out of this text, that what we're doing here is not so much methodological. In other words, I'm not sitting here teaching a systematic methodology for how to share your faith. Say, oh, you have to do it this way, or you have to follow my method of doing it. I guess what we're doing is a bit more organic in that we're just looking at evangelism exegetically. We're just going through what the Scriptures teach about evangelism. And so um, we are learning these principles directly from the flow of the text. And so that is a very, very uh, good thing. And so I want to look at different aspects now. Last week we looked at authentic evangelism having with it a particular zeal so that um, arising out of the conversion of these Thessalonians was a passion, a zeal to share the good news to the surrounding region. In fact, he goes on to say that their faith went to every place. 
And so they did not hesitate to share their faith with their neighbor. But now I want to talk about two other points that are here in the text. And that's, number one, that authentic evangelism, we can say, arises from a transformed heart. And that begins, if you look at verse 9, he says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. And here it is. And how you turned from God or to God from idols to serve a living and true God. There's a transformation. They turn to God from idols. And um, their heart was transformed, radically changed. And the simple principle here is that authentic evangelism results from an authentically changed heart. If you have been genuinely transformed by the gospel, then you will preach that gospel that transformed you. It's that simple. I don't understand how someone who has or who claims to have had their entire life turned upside down because nothing less is the claims of Scripture, right? You have been released from prison. You've gone from darkness to light, from death to life. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Every aspect of your life in some way is changed by the gospel. Regeneration renovates the entire heart. You have been changed completely. And now your identity is Christ. Matter of fact, Colossians says your life is hidden in Christ. So your new identity is Christ. The Apostle Paul says we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. Now the only thing that matters is whether or not you are in Christ or not in Christ. That really is all that matters. I want to back up here for a moment and just talk about Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians. You know, biblical evangelism, the way that it should function, is that we should have a biblical foundation in the church, and evangelism is done from that biblical church ministry. Uh, It was Paul's ministry. Uh, I think the reason why this church was so commendable in their evangelism was because of the biblical ministry that they received from the Apostle Paul, and then the way they received the Word of God, of course. You see this if you turn over to chapter 2. It says, for this reason, in verse 13, we constantly thank God that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God. And it says, which also performs its work in you. So what is that work? And I can't wait to get to that verse. But what is that, wor- what is that work? Well, partially it's here. It's evangelistic. The, work of, the Word of God performing its work in your life is expressed through a zeal for evangelism. And uh, the Apostle Paul had faithfully ministered that Word of God to them. And so they received the apostolic message or the apostolic preaching of the Word of God, of the cross. It was authentic. It was biblical. And so I want to think with you a little bit about biblical ministry. Uh, Jeffrey Wyma in his commentary on Thessalonians regarding how the, uh, the contrast between Paul's ministry and other words, other messages, other preachers, if you would, 
uh, in that day. The contrast here, he says, in an age where traveling philosophers and orators frequently entered a city with extravagant pomp and self-serving motives of securing the praise and purse of its citizens, people throughout Macedonia and Achaia and even beyond recognized that Paul's mission-founding visit to Thessalonica exhibited none of these vain and, and dishonest practices. Amen. Um, this, is, this is so true of Paul. Um, uh, preaching through 2 Corinthians when we went through that book, so much of 2 Corinthians is devoted to uh, reminding the church of Paul's sincere, authentic, biblical ministry among them. I, I ter- want you to turn to 1 Corinthians, though. Go to 1 Corinthians just to see this as we think about the excellence of Paul's ministry of the Word of God. This is the bedrock of their evangelism. It should not work uh, any other way. It should not be that you are evangelistically zealous, but the ministry of the Word that you're getting at your church is weak. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've had phone calls from people I don't even know. They just call me up. I don't even know how they find me. But they find me somehow, call me up and say, hey, I'm so-and-so from such-and-such. And I'm really frustrated because I'm extremely zealous for evangelism. And I want to do what you've done, what I see you guys doing, and blah, blah, blah. But the church that I'm with, they don't really support that. They don't really want to get behind evangelism. They don't really like us sharing and passing out tracts. And definitely not, you know, the, you know, the, the open-air preaching stuff is too radical. You know, they don't even want, to want us in the church type of thing, you know. I've had those phone calls over and over. Not, not all the time. And, you know, I try to give people advice on how to do. But it just... You know, so I appreciate the harmony here. I appreciate the fact that it is consistent with what Paul preached. Again, they are imitating him. It's because his ministry was, was authentic. It was biblical. It was sound. You see his passion for this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You know, this is good that we're looking at this because in chapter 2, I just want to get you ready for something. And that is that chapter 2 is really one of the hallmarks of Paul's uh, pastoral uh, ministry, sort of the passages that really deal with biblical pastoral ministry. So if you're uh, interested in pastoral ministry, and if you care, and we should all care for this, but chapter 2 is kind of like the like, like crema, la creme of Paul's pastoral theology. Uh, and I think uh, John MacArthur has called it something like, you know, Paul's master plan for pastoral ministry. Because chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians is all about his method and manner in pastoral ministry. But so is this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and this is such a glorious text. Let me just uh, walk us through this quickly. It's beginning in verse 10, the Apostle Paul, after he got done talking about the fact that It may be that he planted and somebody else watered the seed of the word. And so that, you know, really, whether you plant or water, you're nothing in God's eyes. I mean, the only one that matters is God. He's the one that gives the increase. We're just, we're just laboring in his field. We're just servants. Okay. And he says in verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Now, just Look at that language there, that concern. He saw himself as a gospel architect who laid a proper foundation for the purpose of a continual building. Now, anybody that knows anything about construction understands that the foundation determines the course of the rest of the structure. The foundation is bad. The rest of the structure, it may look good, but really, 
The foundation is faulty, so in the end it will crumble. It just won't stand the test of time. Because if you don't have a good foundation, what good is the rest of the building? And so thankfully, Paul says, look, I, had, I laid a good foundation. So what's the metaphor about? The metaphor is doctrine. What he's saying is that he had planted a doctrinally solid church. That he had began the church, he begun the church, the foundation or the founding of the church was laid on the sound doctrine of the Word of God. In other words, it was a good gospel that they were building on. Then he says, but uh, he says another is building on it. So whoever comes after Paul, they're merely building on the foundation that Paul laid. And he says, each man must be careful how he builds on it. You see that there, the, 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 the plea for ministerial self-awareness, for uh, being self-conscious of what you do in ministry and in preaching. Why? Well, because it all goes down to judgment. It all comes down to the great assize before the throne of Christ, as we'll see. He says, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you do on top of the gospel, you can't affect the foundation because there is no other foundation. There is no other Christ to preach but then the one that the apostles preached. And so what he's saying is you can do whatever you want on top of the foundation, but you cannot affect the foundation in reality because there is no other gospel. But he says, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones or with wood or hay or straw, watch this, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire. Don't you want to be part of the ministry? You have to go through fire. It says, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Don't think you're off the hook if you're not in pastoral ministry. Anyone who is doing any gospel ministry, anything, anybody that's teaching anyone down to your children or down to your evangelistic presentation or what have you, or your ministry in the church, whether you're teaching a small group, a Sunday school a class, whether you're teaching the children in Sunday school, whether you're leading family devotions, whatever you teach will be tested by fire on that day. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that bring a sobriety? I mean, how do you play around with the Word of God knowing that you're headed towards a refining fire of judgment? That everything that you said and that you taught is going to be tested by some sort of supernatural, eschatological fire. I mean, you should really put the fear of God in your heart. It says the fire will test each man's work. If any man's work... Uh, it says, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. And I think we're supposed to pause and look at that and think about that, meditate on that, and not just kind of gloss over that. I think we're supposed to digest that. I think we're supposed to let the gravity of that land on us and think about the loss uh, that you will suffer on that day. But he himself, watch it, he himself will be saved. So it's not a matter of salvation. But it is a matter of sanctification. It is a matter of ministerial faithfulness, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, that's not talking to an individual believer, although that comes later in Corinthians. Here, the plural pronoun is referring to the whole church. You all, the church, are the temple of God. What's he doing with this language? What he's showing us is that 
the most crucial part of the temple of God is holiness. Is that the temple of God is to be a place that ministers with holiness. People have to be consecrated for that. He says here, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, watch, look at this language, guys. If anybody destroys the temple of God, and I think what that means is destroys it through false teaching, God will destroy him. Wow. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. See, the Apostle Paul laid a proper foundation because for Paul, ministry could only be done with a heart of sincerity, a heart of ministerial integrity. And that was his passion. And the result of this was transformation. When the gospel is accurately preached, and to the degree that the gospel is accurately preached through a faithful ministry, then the result, the guaranteed result, is that God is going to move upon the hearts of men. It may not be there immediately. It may not be before you. You may never see much fruit. Remember the, um, remember the, the autobiography of D.A. Carson. He talks about his dad, uh, his father, who had a very small church. And he would read his father's um, diary. And in many of the entries, his father was greatly discouraged in the ministry. And he would talk about the fact that you know, after a sermon, he was very discouraged and talk about the fact that he had preached very poorly again and that he was just discouraged and, and he didn't see a lot of fruit. But little did he know that he was affecting the life of his son and that his son one day would become one of the greatest evangelical scholars in the world. You know, agree, disagree with D.A. Carson, wherever you might. <laughs> and I have my personal disagreements with him on some things. But overall, D.A. Carson, hey, listen, it took me three and a half years to preach to the Gospel of John. And D.A. Carson was right on my desk every single week. And so you never know how or when the results of faithfully preaching and teaching the Word of God will come. But they will come. And they certainly came in Thessalonica because it was after the word had come. Look at verse, verse 5. Go back up to verse 5. After the gospel came to them, not only in, the, in word, it wasn't just that they spoke it, they backed it up with their life. Because he says it didn't, it, they didn't come with word only, but in, the, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Isn't that amazing? They backed it up with their life. Full conviction just means with certainty. There, was a, there wasn't a speculation about the gospel, right? They weren't there to have a conversation. They were there to proclaim the gospel, to preach it in power and in full conviction. They were declaring who God was and what He had done through His Son. What's the result of that? The result is that it resulted in explosion of conversion so that they turn from paganism to serve the true and living God. Look at this. It says, you turn from God... Excuse me, I keep messing that up. I, and I even warned myself in my notes. I said, don't say turn from God. <laughs> but I keep doing it, sorry. They turned to God from idols because those prepositions are very important. One is talking about a direction towards God in faith. The other one is talking about a direction away from idolatry. And that's really the essence of true conversion. If you want a snapshot at what that might have looked like, 
Maybe not in Thessalonica because we don't really have the details of that. But turn over to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, different church, same phenomenon. Acts 19, beginning of verse 18. This is in Ephesus later. You talk about the word of God going out with power and being backed up by power. God was, in those days, supporting much of the gospel proclamation with miracles and, and extraordinary signs and wonders, as it says in there earlier in the context of Acts 19, so that e- even the, uh, the shadow of the apostle was healing people. Incredible. And, and the result of this, and you can see the wisdom of God in doing this, because the result of this is that this was a deeply pagan culture that the apostles were ministering in. It says in verse 18, many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, their practices of black, of uh, dealing with the demonic magic. He says, many of those practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. Look at that, guys. In the sight of everyone, they began burning their books of magic. I remember Ray Comfort once was preaching and he was out in the open air preaching and he had a Satanist uh, there at the microphone combating him. This guy, uh, you know, ended up tearing his pentagram off of his neck and going down in front of Ray's feet and throwing himself down and saying he wanted Christ. It was like that, but way, way more uh, powerful in the sense that this was a multitude of people that were doing this. Many people were bringing their books and destroying them in the sight of everyone. They counted up the price of the books. It was about 50,000 pieces of silver, a lot of money back then. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Isn't that remarkable? It wasn't just a turning from sin, though. It was also a turning to God. And this is exactly what God called Paul to do. If you're still in Acts, go to Acts chapter 26, because I think most of us remember Acts 9. That's the conversion of Saul to Paul. And many of us remember the account there, what happened. But, you know, Paul actually recounts this. He tells the testimony of what had happened to him on the road to uh, uh, Damascus. But, and, and we get a few more details there. Look at uh, Acts 26, beginning in verse 15. You'll see what I mean by this is exactly what God called Paul to do. To turn pagans from their idolatry. Um, Beginning in verse 15, as he's telling the story, he said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things, watch this, this is an interesting detail, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Wow, interesting. Seems like subsequent appearances of Christ to Paul. Interesting. He says, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. That's why he's called the apostle to the Gentiles. For what purpose? Verse 18, a purpose clause. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified. I love this language by Jesus here. By faith in me. (laughs) I love that. Just the command. He constrains our worship. 
It's no surprise, therefore, to find Paul and his churches emphasize this note of idolatry. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, very similar thing. It says, however, at that time when you did not know God, you were slave to those who, which by nature are no gods. So the Galatians, too, were pagans. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, same thing. This is not to mention, you know, the Philippians, the Colossians, uh, many others. He says, you know that when you were pagans, <laughs> wow, the Apostle Paul's not sugarcoating anything here. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by moot idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And that's what happened. They had gone from paganism to professing Christ as Lord. Christ as Lord. Notice the the issue of repentance here involves these two aspects. It's a turning to God and it is a turning away from sin. It is a faith in God and it is a repudiation, a rejection of sin, whatever sin that may be, idolatry or what have you. This is why repentance has to be emphasized in any legitimate gospel presentation. And we are very zealous and we are very... Um, we are very concerned that every member of our church knows how, that, they, that you would know how to properly articulate a gospel message. Uh, during membership, one of the questions that we ask you typically is, can you articulate the gospel? And if so, what is it? And it cannot be simply, well, the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross. Well, that's part of the gospel, but that's not the gospel. You know, well, the gospel is that man is a sinner. That's part of the gospel, but that is not the whole gospel. And so, you know, this is what I tell you to do. If you have Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, he has a chapter in that systematic theology where he gives you the, the, the three or four essential components to a biblical, faithful gospel presentation. I think that was so good of him to do that. But there he talks about the need to articulate sin, the need to articulate the cross, the need to articulate repentance, and the need for the believer to invite someone to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think something like that has to be involved. But in any faithful gospel presentation. You cannot simply just put a, you know, your own spin on it. Okay, put your own spin on it, but at the end of the day, when you stop spinning, it better say something like, you need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for your sin. If you will trust in Him, you will be forgiven of your sin and have everlasting life. You better cram that in there somewhere, because that's the gospel. The power is not in your mode of communication. It is not in your style of communication. It is not in your eloquence in communicating the message. It is not in your timing. It's not in your empathy. It's not in your inflection of your voice. It's not whether or not you're preaching or you're just having a conversation over coffee. It is in the essential components of the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our need to summon people to repent of their idolatry, of their sin, and to trust in the Savior. That's what it's, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Notice also what happened as a result of this. If you're back in Thessalonians, it says here that verse 9, it says, They themselves report what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. 
No apologies, brothers and sisters. No political correctness whatsoever. If you do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ, if you are not serving, if you are not worshiping the triune God of Scripture, you are an idolater. You are serving a deaf, moot, lame idol. There's no in-between. God does not allow us to sort of ecumenically open the door to other paths of religion. Sorry. There are no other paths of spirituality. There is light and there is darkness. There is truth and there is error. There is the true and living God and then everything else outside of that is idolatry. It's black and white. And I think you know that. I think you know that. The next thing is this. Not only did authentic evangelism lead to a transformation of heart, a true transformation of heart, so that they who were enslaved to idols became enslaved to the true and living God. And by the way, if you look at that word there where it says that you began to serve the living and true God, that Greek word there, duleo, literally means that you enslaved yourself to the living and true God. It's a transferring. It's, a, it's like you're being transferred from one master to the other, from the tyranny of the mastery of sin to the mastery of Christ. But it doesn't end there. Notice the other effect of all of this. It's also eschatological because he says it's not just that they began to serve God, but then really in verse 10, it says here that they waited for, the, for, for God's Son from heaven. And I want you to notice that there are three very important verbs in this passage that we're looking at today, verses 9 and 10. There is turning, there is serving, and there is waiting. And waiting is a very important word here. Very interesting, too. Uh, Thessalonians is really um, amazing me how much Paul uses sort of uh, language that he doesn't use anywhere else. It's called a hapax legomena. Again, just uh, means once word. It just means that it's the only time he uses that word. Is that always kind of uh, piques my curiosity. Why does Paul do that? Because, here's the deal, when he says to wait for his son from heaven, that Greek word is anameno. And everywhere else in the New Testament, that's the only place in the whole New Testament he chose to use anameno. And then everywhere else where it talks about verses maybe that you've seen, that you've read, that talk about waiting for the Lord's return or waiting on the Lord or waiting for the Lord to return in, in, in some form or fashion, he uses a different word. It's epekdekamai. It's a different Greek word. And he uses that over and over. You eagerly await his appearing passages like that. And what's interesting is that this word here, anameno, just kind of has the root idea of abiding. It's kind of the same where we get the word to abide in him, that language. And so maybe he uses this word to stress the fact that he's commending them not only because they are eagerly awaiting his return, but also because they are abiding within their present circumstance, their present situation, which in this context is persecution. Persecution. But when we think about evangelism, we should not fail to realize that evangelism itself is an act of eschatology. Let me say that again. Evangelism itself is an act of eschatology. In other words, by the very act of preaching and proclaiming the gospel, you are in the stream of eschatology. You are declaring the end. You should 
And we shouldn't shy away from that. I think if you, if you look around, I think a lot of people, they don't like to talk. Well, first of all, they don't like to talk about eschatology because everybody starts arguing and fighting. But, but, no, but even in, in our gospel presentation, we almost shy away from talking about the return of Christ. Have you kind of found yourself doing that? Right? That, that we don't really want to emphasize the return of Jesus Christ, almost as if we're ashamed of it. Because people are going to you know, accuse you of being some kind of doomsday preacher or something like that. But Paul didn't do that. He didn't, um, he, he didn't shy away from declaring the eschaton, even in his gospel presentation. Look with me, Acts chapter 17, for example. Acts chapter 17, which this is a passage that is evangelistic. There's Paul on Mars Hill. He's debating with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. And uh, he is talking to them about their pagan poetry and stuff like that. So this is apologetical. This is evangelistic context. And look at what he says. Acts uh, 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that, to men that all people everywhere should repent. You see that? Emphasis on repentance. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Isn't that amazing? You should repent. Why? Because the day of judgment is coming. And who will judge you? The man Christ Jesus when he returns. Let's talk about that return. Look at the language here back in Thessalonians verse 10 here. He says that they were to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So there are three aspects of the return of Christ that we want to emphasize here. Number one, notice that he does not stop at his return. He does not say that you wait for his son, but he says that you wait for his son from heaven. Why is that important? Well, because when you're speaking of the return of Jesus from heaven, from the heavens. He is returning as what? As the ascended, exalted Lord Christ King. His, his return from heaven means that is the realm in which He dwells now. And in the heavenly realms, Jesus is no longer a meek, weak, lowly, Savior, now He is an exalted, glorious, all-powerful, all-authoritative Lord, King, Conqueror, Warrior. And when He returns, the Bible said, a sword will proceed out of His mouth and He will destroy His enemies. Isn't that amazing? And Islam says we don't like Christianity because it's a religion of weakness. How can you say it's a religion of weakness when Christ is going to come back and destroy all of His enemies and rule and reign as the exalted Lord who is at the right hand of God? In other words, you cannot, you cannot divorce His ascension from His return. They go together. Matter of fact... This is exactly the point that Jesus himself made when he was preaching to his enemies, you remember? 
Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, as he's there before uh, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, he's sitting there being falsely accused, and it says, Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us whether or not you are the Christ, the Son of God, and how did Jesus answer? Jesus answered by putting two Old Testament quotations together. He answered with Psalm 110. He answered with Daniel chapter 7. And this is what he said. He says, you have said it yourself. Wow, it's like Caiaphas, you spoke better than you know by asking me whether or not I am the Son of God. Because the Son of God is this. He says, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. All authority. That is what His return from heaven signifies. Notice also that they waited, from, they waited for Him from heaven. And He says that it is He who was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. In other words, the resurrection is so seminal to the doctrine of Christ. It's so critical. I've mentioned this to you several times that the apostolic preaching of the gospel centered around, if there's one thing that it's centered around more than anything in the world, especially if you look at the book of Acts, it is the resurrection. It is not justification by faith. It is not predestination. It is not election. It is not sanctification. It's not any other doctrine. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ implies the fact that God has, God is going to not only raise His Son, but He's going to raise His people. Because He is not just an isolated resurrection. By the way, there's not, in a sense, two resurrections his and ours, there's one resurrection. He's the first one to do it. <laughs> and then we're just going to follow in his wake. You see what I'm saying? So he's the first fruits of the harvest, but we're part of the harvest. And so when it talks about his resurrection, it implies our resurrection. You see, if God rose his son, he will resurrect us. <laughs> If you don't have hope in the resurrection, you don't have hope. It, it's just a matter of fact. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be, because what we will be is reserved for the eschaton. Okay? And look at, he goes on to say, We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is and everyone who has this resurrection hope, this hope in the second coming of Jesus Christ, he says, purifies himself just as he is pure. That's a whole nother sermon. Final point. Does it just point us, his resurrection point us to our resurrection, but it also uh, points us to our future deliverance, therefore. And that's why he says, according to... Uh, uh, referring to Jesus, He rescues us from the wrath to come. I don't know about you, but when I see things like Florida, when I see things like that, I just think, wrath is coming. When you just see the decadence of the culture, of the world, when you just, when you just see how bad it is, Maybe I'm more sensitive to it now, guys. 
because I have to raise a little girl in this culture. I just think, oh, God, have mercy. It's so bad. It's getting so bad. It's going to be so bad. And the Bible, t- and Paul tells us, right, in Ephesians, it's because of these sins. It's because of all of the immorality. We're inundated by it. We are just immersed in this pornographic culture. We're immersed in this sensual society that we live in. But be not deceived. It is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. And therefore, as we think about being evangelistic, it is not until we really reckon with the terror of the wrath of God. And, and, And here's the deal. Don't get discouraged when people mock the wrath of God. What else do you want them to do? They don't believe in it. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They say like what they said to Noah. What Peter talks about. Things have always been this way since the beginning of the world. I mean, come on, give me a break. Wrath, what are you talking about? Now, wrath is coming either through someone's personal eschatological event, i.e., death and judgment, or through a cosmic eschatology as he returns in power in the clouds with great glory. One way or another, wrath is coming, and therefore for us, I don't think there could be a more immense comforting promise than that. Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. And He did it on the cross. And that's why we preach a wrath-bearing cross, because He bore the wrath that we deserve on the cross. And that's why we cannot sugarcoat the message. We have to just preach it in all of its awful terror and let men reckon with God and let them reject you and let them mock you and let them roll their eyes at you and let them storm out of the room and let them get mad at you and let them report you to their employer and let them whatever And let there be an awkward ice with your neighbor or whatever. Ice in the air. Who cares? Those people are headed for wrath. And we're trying to save face. We're trying not to step on anybody's toes and offend anybody. I'm telling you, I'm preaching to myself because we are so cowardly at times. It's like if we really believe that, and I know, here we go, ABC Christianity, but if we really believe that, that our neighbor, our friend, our loved one, the person next to us is headed for wrath. Oh, brothers and sisters, think of the terror of that. I I don't think I'm going overboard. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, because what is missing today from much of evangelical preaching, oh boy, let me tell you, it is almost vanished, is an elaborate... Uh, unafraid sort of, you know, uh, commitment, a resolve to preach the wrath of God. And, And I think it, I don't know what's happened, but I think maybe preachers think it's too sensational or you're going to sound too much like Jonathan Edwards or something like that. Whatever. I want to sound like Paul, don't you? And listen to the way Paul sounds. 
He doesn't shy away from this. Remember, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, the context here of the persecuted, of a persecuted church being oppressed, being mistreated. It says, For all, after all, it is only just, notice it's an issue of the justice of God, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. I mean, how does not the whole globe drop dead of a heart attack at that point? I think the day of judgment is going to be real quick. I don't know how it could last beyond this. Christ returns flaming fire. You see this eschatological crisis breaking out, this cosmic upheaval where the entire cosmos is shaken. And how do you... I think God will have to... With, I think God will have to sustain sinners to see and to bear His wrath before He casts them into hell. He will be revealed with flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. I know, I know a mother who had a rebellious child who was so rebellious, so wicked and so God-hating and God-minimizing and God-ignoring and living a life of just utter depravity. And this is a single mom living with teenagers and she kept grabbing her son and said, you're going to go to hell when you die. You better think about that while you're out partying. She just haunted him. Oh, I, I love that. That teenager became my pastor. And God saved him, and through him saved who knows how many. Did she do it right? I don't know. Might not find it in evangelistic manual anywhere. <laughs> but she was fearless, and she declared the wrath of God. And by the grace of God, the fear of God gripped his heart and shook him loose from a Life of the most vile immorality imaginable. This is why the gospel is not ours. First, it's His. It's not our job to edit it, to try to enhance it. It's not even our job to get all creative with it. Just have the boldness to declare it. Gospel is perfectly fine. It does not need our help. It just needs a tool, a mouthpiece. And how are they going to hear without a preacher? They say, how are they going to hear unless you get creative? No. How are you going to hear unless you become eloquent? No. How are you going to hear unless, you know, you get really theologically mature first? No. How are they going to hear without a preacher? How are they going to preach unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who have been prepared by the gospel, Right? That's what we want. I pray that this has been a blessing to you and challenging to you as it has for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are children in our church today. There are neighbors, friends, loved ones that we know who may not on the surface of it look like they're living some 
lecherous external lifestyle, a lifestyle of just blatant immorality. Maybe they're squeaky clean. Maybe they're growing up in a Christian home and they can say all the right things and do all the right things and it seems real nice on the outside, but unless they've been regenerated by your spirit, we know that they are without God and without hope in the world and so desperately need to be saved. And so, Father, would you use us? Help us to start in our own little society, our house. Help us to start in our own little community, our family, our co-workers, people around us. And then, if you are willing, oh God, would you raise up a mighty army? I mean, look at our church. We're so small. There are churches in this area, thousands and thousands of people pour in every week. And I'm so grateful, God, for the evangelistic zeal that resides in this church. I don't say that pridefully. I say that, to, I say that desperately. Saying, oh God, help us. We know that zeal is not automatic. We know that we have to be intentional about our commitment to preach, to share. And... Um, We pray that you would just give us an increased passion for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.